Uh, talking about Christmas, and as we step into what Christmas is, I don't know about you, but Christmas for a long time in my life meant stress. It meant being overwhelmed. It meant struggling through the uh, the calendar. Anybody else feel that way ever? Um, I felt that way before I had kids. Like, yeah, well, as a youth pastor and my wife being a teacher, Christmas is like crazy. Because instead of just, you know, you've got adopted 50 kids <laughs> instead of your kids. So it was like, oh, everyone has a choir program. It, they all are on different nights. Fantastic. Uh, so, and like all these different things going on. Um, but, but Christmas for that decade, from about 2004 uh, to uh, for the 10 years I was a youth pastor on um, 2013, 14, I, uh, I kind of dreaded Christmas. Like Thanksgiving hit, and it was like, all right, here we go. Um, and you'd look at the calendar, and everything has something on it, right? There's no empty days. And you're just like, oh, can it be over? Let me tell you something about Christmas. The last thing that we should ever be thinking about Christmas is, can it be over? So if our schedule and our priorities are in a way that all that Christmas produces in us is anxiety and stress and just worry, we got to change our priorities of Christmas, okay? I'm just start out with that thing. I was talking to a mom this week, and it, w- it was really refreshing because I asked her about uh, Christmas and what was going on. She's like, ah, we don't do that. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it that their response was, uh, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't really do that. And I was like, ah, oh, that's awesome. Uh, you're not, not getting caught up in all this stuff. Because that's been a real, like, a fight for me is uh, Kelly and I were talking about in December. She's like, we don't have anything on the calendar that week. It was a week in December. I didn't have anything on the calendar. Something will happen. But, uh, you know, someone will go in the hospital. Something will happen. But uh, there's, there's a week in December. We don't have anything. Are you kidding me? What is that about? What does that look like? And I thought, okay. How do we, you know, my first reaction is, okay, what can we fill it with? We can now can go to three more parties. We can do eight more things. We can go see eight more light displays. We can do all these things. And I was like, no, 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 no. Slow it down. Enjoy Christmas. Christmas, and the thought we're going to deal with today is Christmas is the birth of freedom. And if Satan is going to try to steal our joy and our peace of this season, he's going to try to make us slaves to a calendar. And so as we step into this, uh, this idea of Christmas as the birth of freedom, let's think of, I don't want to stress you out at the beginning of this message so you quit thinking about it and all you're thinking about is your to-do list, but let's just go, hey, you know what? Are there things on my calendar that maybe I can remove? Are there are obstacles in my path maybe I need to give to Jesus. Are there things going on that, okay, I can just, I don't really need to do that. Because Christmas at its root is the birth of freedom. Christmas is a celebration of freedom, of love, and of hope. When we read the Christmas story, we step into um, the gospel of Luke. And it's incredibly important that we understand things about Luke as we start to read the Gospel of Luke. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is written to primarily a Jewish audience. And so when you read Matthew and the, and the Christmas story in Matthew, what you get is a genealogy and you get the presents. 
Matthew is only worried about who's your daddy and where'd the money come from. He was a tax collector and he was a Jewish guy. Like, that's all he's worried about, right? He doesn't care about the rest of it. Um, he, he, he just jumps right in there. Uh, Mark is the Cliff Notes version of the gospel, right? You, you don't even get Jesus early on. You just get, boom, here we go. Let's jump in the story. You're like, okay, I don't. If you needed background information, Mark is not your guy, okay? Um, John wrote the gospel of John way later than the other three. The other three wrote probably about uh, pretty early on after um, probably about 40, 50 um, A.D. Um, John, in his probably 80s or 90s, in a prison, wrote the Gospel of John. He's reading the other ones going, they forgot this part and they forgot this part. Let me fill in the gaps. And so John's written, it feels totally different. If you read John, you're going, oh, this, this just doesn't even feel like Luke um, or, or Matthew. That's by intent. John was, you don't need to, have to hear the same stuff over again. You need to hear uh, the stuff that they didn't get in there. Okay, And so that's why they're all a little differently. What a gospel means is good news. It's the good news of Christ. So they're, they're books written basically uh, telling you the story of Jesus, the narrative of, story of, of Jesus. What does this all mean? What is he teaching? What's going on? Luke is the only one to talk about the actual birth of Jesus. Matthew talks about uh, the Magi coming, but Luke is the only one that talks about the birth of Christ. So it's very interesting. Who is Luke? What's he about? Because who he is is very, very important to understanding what his bent is when he's relaying the Christmas message. Luke was most likely a Greek slave who was trained as a doctor. Luke was most likely a Greek slave who was trained as a doctor or former slave. Because he gets to travel around a lot. You're going, a slave wouldn't get to do that. But yes, he, most doctors at, in the Roman time period were slaves. And so that's how we get figure that out. Um, and the way in which he writes Luke and Acts. We're going to read, um, read the Christmas story again, at least uh, 1 through 7. And I want to just fixate on that, kind of figure out in our minds, what does him being a doctor, a slave... And a Greek, not a Jew, but a Greek, how does that change the way in which I, I read or what I extrapolate from the Christmas story? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, the census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that was, took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with, his, with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no, <laughs> I'm going to say no room for them in the inn. Translation says no guest room available for them. Messed me up when they changed that. There was no room for them in the inn, right? So it's supposed to be written. It doesn't matter. Um, this, this, this is Luke's coming into that, and there's a lot going on here just in the very first couple sentences. When he says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. He is screaming to everyone that, he, uh, that is listening to this, which is primarily a Greek audience, hey, this is a real thing. It's a shared experience. Your parents or yourself 
dealt with the, the ramifications of Caesar Augustus coming to power, the whirlwind that happened then, all the wars that happened at that time, all the stuff that went on, where it's a shared experience. It didn't matter if you're Hebrew or if you're Greek. He's, he's taking this huge traumatic event for the whole empire, for this whole European, Eurasia-type uh, area in northern Africa, and saying, hey, we all share the same experience. We all lived through Caesar Augustus. We all live under the Roman Empire. Do you, do you see that? So we kind of miss that because, because we're like, oh yeah, in those days, Caesar Augustus is your decree. We're used to Charlie Brown, you know, reading it for us and Linus explaining it uh, to us. We're used to all that. We just whoop, go through it. Except what he's saying, this Greek slave doctor is saying, listen, you may think this Jesus is this, is this religion over in Israel, this, is, this religion that doesn't apply to you, this religion that doesn't, doesn't matter. But what I'm going to say is this, this Savior has shared experience with you and with me. Does that make sense? And we're going to get a little history, uh, history channel here for the next 10 minutes, and then we're going to apply this directly to our lives, okay? So if you're a history buff, you're going to really like this next uh, moment. If you don't like history, hopefully I can make you like this next moment, and uh, we'll be okay. Because there's a lot to unpack here just in these, these seven verses about who Jesus is and about the time period of what's going on. To understand this, we, we step into who is Caesar Augustus. Who is he? He is, um, he's got all these monikers. And people write him letters and they'll call him Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Savior of the world, ruler of earth and the sea. Now where else have you heard those monikers? I've sang that about Jesus. I don't know about you, I've, I've sang that about Jesus. He claims all of these, these titles that are really supposed to be reserved for Jesus. He claims them all, and how he gains them, how he grabs a hold of these titles, is through the most un-Jesus-like manner you possibly can. He becomes uh, emperor. He, he works, if you know your, your uh, Roman history, um, his adopted father is Julius Caesar, who kind of blows up the, makes the empire happen, and then uh, the wars after Julius Caesar's assassination kind of cement uh, Rome going from the Republic to the empire. And, and through assassination attempts, through wars, through blackmail, through the most underhanded dealings he possibly could do, uh, through politics, through conniving, through all this stuff, at the end of all of it, uh, Caesar Augustus becomes the only ruler of Rome. He actually takes the titles of the chief religious officer. He takes the titles of the chief political officers. He consolidates it all, and he becomes this guy. He calls himself the ruler of uh, the sea or son of God um, because he defeated a general named Pompey who said because he had such a big navy that he was the son of Neptune. It was kind of like, I'm the son of Neptune because I can control anything that happens on the Mediterranean. So when Octavian, or Octavian who changes his name to Augustus, uh, defeats Pompey, he says, well, if you were the son of Neptune, I must be better, so I'm going to call myself the son of Neptune and whatever the, the land god was. I can't remember right at the moment. And so you have this kind of building on, its, on itself of he's just claiming because of his killing people um, these things. 
He's calling himself savior of the world because he ends the cycle of wars. He ends the cycle of wars that had been brewing in uh, the Roman world uh, for about 100 years. They were killing lots and lots and lots and lots of people. The problem with that was the only way he came to power was he just killed more people than everybody else. That doesn't sound like a pretty good savior to me, but that was the claim that he made. All of this would have been known to everybody that Luke wrote the gospel to. When he says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken to the entire Roman world. Everyone, like, grandma told me about that. It's like, the, you know, basically like the depression to us. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, everybody, everybody knew. Now, Caesar Augustus is, is actually remembered as one of the better Roman emperors. But if you hear about what the actual stuff he did, is this guy, he was bloodthirsty megalomaniac. And so you juxtapose that against Jesus. Jesus is humble. Augustus never knew a day of poverty in his life. He was always in palaces, always in villas, in the poshest of posh things. He probably had, if you looked at what Augustus got to do on a day-to-day basis, his life looked more like ours than anybody else throughout history. He would have had indoor plumbing. He would have had been able to go to the spa. He would have had showers. He would have had like all, hot water. He would have had all these things. Jesus is born probably in a cave. That's what a stable was. If they don't have enough wood in Israel to start building barns like we see around here, you know, I've got the classic Midwestern uh, nativity scene in my house. It's a nice, you know, barn. You should just paint it red and put a, like a tobacco sticker on the roof, right? That's that's. That's what mine looks like. Um, it doesn't have a tobacco sticker on it. But, um, <laughs> but, that, but it probably was actually a cave um, is what they, would have, what they would have put in a stable. So he's born in that. Not a villa, not a posh, posh palace. He's born in a cave. He claims to be son of God, not because of who he has killed, but because who his father is. He gains power through love and compassion and mercy. He says he's Lord of the sea because he calms the sea, not because he kills people on it. You see, so Luke is already building this. this, He says this, but this is who Jesus is. Do you see that happening? He is Savior of the world, not because of the hundreds of thousands of people that died because of his choices. He is Savior of the world because of his own sacrifice. Do you see that? Okay. And so Luke is pouring a lot of that, and he's going to continue to do that for the rest of his gospel. If you, um, if you read the rest of Luke, you're going to see this, wow, he's, he is turning uh, Jesus' way of life is totally opposite of the way that Roman culture has. We call it the upside-down kingdom. That's what happens in the commentaries. It's upside-down. Everything is just, you think it should work this way? Jesus says it works this way. That's, that's how Luke is all set up, and it's beautiful. But he's always saying, okay, because he's a Greek, and he's a slave, and he's a doctor, he's always saying, listen, 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 listen. It doesn't have to be this way. Jesus is here for you. Because it have been so easy for... The, the, the burgeoning Christian movement to just stay in Israel and stay this little sect of Judaism. And so Luke goes to great, 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 great pains to say, hey, all you Greeks, 
All you Romans, it's for you as well. It's shared experience. You did the census thing. I did the census thing. Mama did the census thing. Their mama did the census thing. We're all in this together. Does this make sense? All right. So what does a Greek slave doctor have to teach us in telling us of the birth of Jesus? He's not, or Luke is Greek. He's not a chosen Jew. He doesn't have the promises of uh, the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and all, all that, that history. He doesn't have that. But he knows Jesus is for him. He's a slave or a former slave. One of the things that uh, Augustus did was that he, um, after his war, there was about 30,000 slaves that had gotten free because their masters had gotten killed or just because of the war they got let go. Um, because he's such a benevolent ruler, he rounded all those up and gave them back to their masters or the relatives of their masters. Right? And so when Jesus, or what's said about Jesus is he sets the captive free, it's directly against this Augustine idea of I'll capture you and put you back in your masters and you'll be in slavery and bondage forever. And Jesus says, no, 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 I set you free. Do you see how that works? He's a doctor. He knows what it looks like to be in a bad situation. And he knows when a bad situation turns out for the better. The doctor's eyes, he looks at the situation and he sees potential for healing. I love that. I think he sees, he's hopeful in his gospel of Jesus is out there and not only is it, is it healing, it's healing for your soul. And so he's continually teaching that all throughout this gospel. And he starts that whole message here in the birth of Jesus. Christmas is the birth of freedom. The census. It's so important that he references the census. The census, you cannot get more controlling than a census. A census says, I own you. A census says, I'm in charge of you. A census says, I can make you do whatever you want. It's not like, it's kind of like our census is today, but not to the degree. If we have a census once every 10 years here in, in the U.S., we get a census and it says, hey, fill out this stuff because we want to know how we can tax you. It also wants to know how we're supposed to represent you in, in Congress and in the Senate. It's supposed to do all kinds of stuff. A Roman census was a little, not as uh, benevolent as our censuses. Since I, since, whatever. Um, I don't know what the plural of census is. Uh, so the, the, um, what's going on there in the Roman time period is this is saying, how can I tax you? How can I levy an army for you? How many of my soldiers need to be in your country to control you? How many maybe did I kill of you last year uh, so that I know if you, you warrant this much attention or not? It was really this, this uber control type uh, mentality of why a census. In fact, if you look back in the Old Testament, anytime a king of Israel tries to have a census of his own people, God gets really miffed at them. It, like David tries to do it, he says, like, what are you doing? Do you, not, do you not trust me? Because back then it was for taxes and how much military could I raise on a, uh, on a moment's notice. And so he does this and he's like, I'm your you don't need people to fight your wars for you. I'm, if I'm God Almighty, you don't really need like, you know, your, your slingshots there, buddy. 
Same thing's happening here. So censuses, are, in God's eyes, are always kind of bad, bad deals. It's very interesting that this is how Jesus' birth starts. Here's the deal. Census is an exercise in power of power projected on uh, these people. It's a power to take. It's a power to control. This is a huge undertaking for Caesar, for the Roman government. It's a big deal. It leaves a scar on people's hearts and souls. It makes them live in fear. But here's the beauty in it. God says, oh, that's nice. You're having a census. I'm going to use it to fulfill a 400-year-old prophecy that I have in Malachi. Like, think about what that is. Like, God's like, oh, that's, that's cool. You're making a pregnant woman walk across the country. Could you imagine? I, last year at Christmas time, I had an eight-month pregnant wife walking across, like walking in the desert from the top of Israel to the south of Israel. That's how where Nazareth and Galilee are. They're a long way away from each other. It's not like, you know, I mean, getting your wife to walk through Jewel is good enough at eight months pregnant. And that's not slamming women. That's just, it's hard. Like, I'm, I'm not volunteering for the job. <laughs> okay, so, but this is what he does. How much control? You think you control everything. You think you can do all these things. I'm going to use this to make a prophecy that's 400 years old come true. There's all kinds of obstacles coming in, in the Christmas story. And every single one, God leverages them with his infinite creativity to have great things come out of it. See, the hardest things in our lives are not obstacles to God. They are opportunities. This is where we're going to move from the history lesson to the practical application, okay? If you're waiting for that, here we go. The hardest things in our lives are not obstacles to God. They are opportunities. There's a lot of obstacles. You got an you unwed mother. That's a big obstacle. David could have, or Joseph could have had her killed if he wanted to. You've got this pregnant woman walking across the country. You have being born in a cave slash barn. That doesn't sound fun, right? How'd that conversation go? <laughs> hey, honey, we got a nice place for you. It's got nice fresh straw. Like, you know, I don't know about you, but my wife, when we were firstborn, we went and toured a Kennestone uh, Hospital because we wanted to know about the birthing suites and, like, we had to know where the, the water birthing thing was. We weren't going to do no water birthing thing. Maybe you did. Good for you. But, we, you know, we had to know where all these things were. We walked through. We went to the classes. We met everybody. Mary, Mary gets a barn, right? Think about it. Mary gets a barn. So that's an obstacle. Um, after this is born, there is a death warrant for all babies three years old and under put out. Like, that's an obstacle. Or could you imagine you just bring home this bundle of joy? Uh, yeah, and now the king wants to kill him? Like, that's the obstacle that's coming in the Christmas story. They're huge obstacles. The hardest things in our lives are not obstacles to God, but they are opportunities. We have stuff in our life. We have things in our life that are obstacles. They're hard times. Maybe they're issues that have been done to us. Maybe they're issues that we have done ourselves. Maybe they're things we can't control. Maybe they're things that we could have controlled. But at every turn, God says to these obstacles here that you <laughs> At every turn, God says these obstacles that you see are building blocks to me. That rhymes. I did not mean for it to. But, uh, hey, you know, when you got rhyme, 
Got the rhythm here, uh, Jimmy. At every turn, God says these obstacles that you see are building blocks to me. Now, as I think about that in my own life, I've got stuff, I have issues, I have a past, I have the junk. But at every turn in our lives, at every moment, every decision point we have, God says, these obstacles that you have, this, this stuff that you got going on, it's not too big for me. I can make it building blocks. I'm infinitely creative. I can do the thing where you don't know how you're going to do this or how you're going to get out of that or the, why this is going on. I can make something beautiful out of it. It's one of these everyday miracles that God does that we take for granted. That he is, he is always fashioning something beautiful, something new, something creative out of the stuff of our life. And sometimes we don't give him the best material to work with. At every turn, God says, these obstacles that you see are building blocks to me. God says, nothing is too much for me. I can use a Greek slave doctor to write a gospel. I'll use Caesar to unwittingly fulfill prophecy. I'll use a teenage girl to bear my son. I'll use pagan magi to bring him gifts. I'll use shepherds as a welcoming party. Nothing. I can use it all. Christmas is the birth of freedom. Because in giving God control of our lives and saying, here's the obstacles I have, what are you going to build with that? There is freedom in that. Because I don't know about you, but I like my Legos and I like my building blocks the way it is. I've got these huge, the huge Duplo box, you know what I'm talking about, the really, really big ones. Um, and we have a bin of them. And my, my 10-month-old just takes them out of the bin and, and chucks them. Like, this is her building with, with Duplo blocks, right? She just chucks them. Well, my, my, uh, my son wants to build castles out of them. Well, they're Lucy's blocks. They're, they're just made to entertain her so she can throw something away around and be fine. Go get your own 8,000 Legos you have upstairs and build something. No, he wants to build with the Duplo blocks. So he'll build her a little castle, and then she loves it, and then she starts tearing it apart, and he has got to start all over again. It's a vicious cycle. But it's the same kind of thing. Like, I want mine. I want, no, these are mine. Like, he was fighting with his older sister, his twin, over the 10 months building blocks. Because why? I want my stuff. Instead of giving it away to the one that is supposed to be playing with it, I want mine. Well, you can't make What are you trying to make? A Charizard? That's not going to happen out of five building blo- Duplo building blocks that have been slobbered on and chucked across the room. That's not going to happen. Which he has the set upstairs. Just go up there. Anyway, that's my parenting issues. You don't need to deal with it. But when we give Jesus and give God the control over our building blocks, over our obstacles, we get to see what his infinite creativity will build. Because when I start building out of these things, I build junk. I build pale, pale replicas of what it actually could be when I let God with his infinite creativity create something. That is where the freedom resides, when I don't have to have the pressure of fixing it, of making it look perfect, of making it all work out. See, when I give away control, I trust in God's creativity. When I give away control, I trust in God's creativity. And this is hard for me because I'm a pretty creative person. I'll make something out of something weird all the time. This is what I like to do. But when I give away the control of this obstacle, of this issue to God, then I get to see his creativity take off. 
when I give away control, I trust in God's promises. And for you this morning, this might be really hard, but what you need to hear. When I give away control, I trust in God's promises. What's God's promise? Well, I'll give you one this morning, and it's often quoted, but it is given to the Jewish people when they're in slavery, when they're in bondage, when the the obstacles of life can't get any worse. This is what he speaks into their heart, what he says to them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I know the plans for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. When I give away control, I trust that God actually wants to do that. Because I'm going to be honest, sometimes I don't really trust that God wants me to prosper and has a plan for me and is, is doing that. I'm like, yeah, but, I, but I, yeah, I, can, I can do it. I want my own Duplo box. But when we give away control of those obstacles to God and say, okay, Lord, I don't, I don't know how to build this. I don't know how to make it better. I don't know how to work it right here. Now I'm trusting that you actually do love me. You actually do care for me. You have a plan for me, and you have plans to prosper and grow me into something that I can't even fathom. Because when God's creativity is in order, we have no idea what he's going to build. And for some of us, that scares the bejeebas out of us. But it's better than everything that we could have planned. Giving God your problems, this is going to be hard. Giving God your problems doesn't mean he'll fix them. It means he will build with them. I I wrote that after the slides were put up, so you might want to write that one down, and I will repeat it. Because I I just was going off in my office, and, and, and God placed that in my lips, and I said, oh, wow, that's way smarter than anything I could come up with. <clears throat> Giving God your problems doesn't mean he will fix them. It means... He will build with them. Do you hear that? It doesn't mean that they're going to be fixed just the way you want them. Like, I, I, I really wish that that would happen. <laughs> that could be like, hey, um, I need to dial up a, a fix of this because I messed up or they messed up or they did something stupid or I did something stupid or blah. But when we give, when we give God our problems, it doesn't mean he'll fix them, but it does mean he will build with them. The things that you try to control will always control you until you give them away. The things you try and control will always control you until you give them away. Augustus tried to control everything and everyone in it. That was the whole idea of the census. But Jesus, he rode the wave of circumstance of all the things happening in the world, the crazy stuff that happened, and he showed us a way to freedom. All through his earthly life, he's taking the circumstances that man gives him and uses his infinite creativity to accomplish his mission. He just rides that wave. Oh, you're going to do this? Okay, we'll use that. Oh, there's a woman at the well? Eh, Let's teach a lesson out of this. There's a guy dying over here? Eh, we'll raise him from the dead. Oh, this woman touched me in in a crowd. Okay, we'll fix that. Oh, this woman's caught in adultery? I'll turn around and teach a bunch of lessons right now. He just rides that wave. 
He uses all those obstacles, all that stuff, all those things, and says, you know what, I'm going I'm to build something more beautiful and gorgeous out of it. And he wants to do that in your life as well. Giving God control moves our lives from being fixed on what I cannot do to participating in what he is doing. Giving God control moves our lives from being fixed on what I cannot do to participating in what he is doing. And there's freedom in that. You hear that? There's there's freedom in that. When I'm participating in what God is up to and what he's doing, I have freedom. The pressure's off. He's in charge. He's got the design plans. I'm just along for the ride. I get to be a part of it. This Christmas, I hope that we can be in a place that says, hey, there's obstacles. There's stuff. Some of you in this room right now have some really, really rough things going on, like earth-shattering, hard stuff going on. How do we give them to God? Every day. We say, God, I'm going to give you this life, give you these obstacles, give you this stuff. And I just want to be along for the ride. I don't get to tell you where the blocks go. (laughs) I don't get to tell you how to fix it. I just want to be along for the ride. I want to see the creativity. The problem with that is it doesn't usually happen on our timetable. I'm going to go ahead and spoiler alert. And it won't look the way that you want it to, and it won't, it'll turn out totally different, but it'll turn out better than you ever have dreamed. Christmas is the birth of freedom. When you're not struggling on how you're going to possibly fix everything or fix everyone, there is freedom in that. You hear that? Like this Christmas, you're like, well, how can I arrange this conversation so I can fix Aunt So-and-So's beef with Uncle blah, 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 blah? Right? How can I do this? And, and I got to get the, the, the cranberry sauce to be perfect this way so Aunt so and so doesn't get mad at Uncle Bobby Sue. I don't know how that happened, but <laughs> I lived in Georgia for too long. It's okay. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but we deal with that, right? We, we deal with that. We play these strategic games. We're playing risk in our head. How can we fix everybody and fix everything at Christmas? Because it's got to be perfect. What happens this Christmas if we say, God, here's the obstacles, here's the stuff. I want to be your servant in everything. Can I be a part of it? How are we going to do this? How are you going to do it? And we get to watch how God in his infant creativity starts to use our obstacles for his good. I have um, an idea for you this morning. I used to do this in, in youth ministry a lot. Every Christmas, this is our Christmas party, I would take um, a bunch of things for gingerbread houses. I'd go to Sam's Club and I'd buy a uh, a 10-gallon bucket of icing. That is a heavy bucket, by the way. I'd buy a 10-gallon bucket of icing. I would buy um, like graham crackers out your wazoo. I would buy the big Twizzler things, all all this stuff. And then we just dump it on a table and you've got 30 seconds to grab whatever you want. And so people are like diving on stuff and graham crackers are getting broken. It's great. People losing teeth is fantastic. Um, (laughs) And they'd go back to their table, and then they'd have 10 minutes to make the best gingerbread house they could make in 10 minutes, okay? And so, um, but for your family, I don't expect you to lose teeth. Um, but for your family, what I would do is I would, I would go buy the stuff for gingerbread houses. And you lay it out on, on, on your, your card table or whatever, and you say, all right, now remove one significant por- uh, piece of the gingerbread house. Not the, not, the, not the graham crackers, because that's kind of like you really got to have the graham crackers. But something else pretty significant to making a gingerbread house work. 
and say, all right, let's build the best gingerbread houses we can. And then you've got to creatively come up with solutions to the problem. Then you can teach, listen, guys, sometimes we don't have everything we need to have the perfect house, but we're going to make something beautiful or grand or great through it. You start teaching the biblical principle that we talked about today around the dinner table. You see how you can do that? And then you get to have an icing fight in the middle of it, and it's great. Um, <laughs> get to find out who's the obsessive compulsive and who's not on that one. Uh, so, don't you throw icing in my house. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, I, I want to urge you to do that. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic tool. Thank you, Brian. Um, but because in that, you get to see a lot of things. You get to teach a lot of moments, right? I could be stressed out and I could shut down because I don't have the Twizzlers to make this. I don't have the candy canes to do this. I can, I can not get past that. Or I can be creative and come up with a different solution. We get to see how when things are removed from our lives, we can do something better with it. That's what God is continually doing in our lives. Every day we say, God, here's the pieces of my life. You want to make something beautiful out of it? Christmas is the birth of freedom. It's my prayer for you this morning. Ben, come on up. I'm going to sing one more song this morning. But when we participate in God's story through our obstacles, through our pain, it gives us victory and freedom over the issues of our life. It's my prayer for you this morning that this Christmas, the obstacles that you get thrown your way, you will give to God, that you will place them in his hand and you will have the patience and the openness to see his creativity. And the patience and the openness is key to seeing God's creativity. Um, We're going to have some more stars um, options for the church to um, bless a couple people um, in uh, starting next week. So these are all for uh, Morningstar Mission. We've had a couple other opportunities that we're going to get to bless people. So maybe you missed the boat. Um, You just weren't here. You you just missed the opportunity. Maybe you're like, I love giving so much. I want to give more. Whatever that looks like. We're going to have some more stars available for you um, this week. Uh, Check out. uh, They might be on the email. I definitely be here for for church next week. I want you to pay attention to those because there's some people in our lives, um, in in our church's life, who've had some obstacles thrown at them this Christmas season, and we get to be part of God's creative uh, solution to issues. Okay, um, so look for those opportunities here in the coming days. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for today, and thank you for this moment. God, I, I give you the obstacles of my life. I give you the stress points. I give you the anxiety. I give you the, the stuff of Christmas, that these, these, these ideas I cannot control, um, that I get so caught up in where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do and what I'm supposed to buy. God, that I just want to give you my Christmas and see what you build out of it. So, Lord, we love you. We're trying to love you more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.